Hey everyone, welcome back to Seller Speak. I'm Ram Menon, Director for Global Community Outreach at SellerApp. After a busy holiday season, we are in somewhat of a slow quarter in terms of business. However, many sellers are still out there trying to find the right product to sell in Amazon. After you finalize the product comes the most critical part of sourcing these materials. Today we have Tim Jordan, an expert from importing from China. He heads Acre Flats, a US-based company with teams in over four countries that specializes in private label sourcing as well as training through various services. When Tim was in his previous government contracting job, he was in charge of sourcing as well as logistics of various products in China as well as other countries. In procurement business, he realized how low his costs of items were actually selling in Amazon itself. In the first year, he had the seven-figure amount. He learned to specialize in launching as well as private label products. Today, he is here to share some great content with our users based on his unique, timely business experience. Nice to have on the show, Tim. Thanks. Hey Tim, to start off, could you tell us about Hickory Flats as well as about yourself and what services do you guys actually provide? Gotcha. So um, I got into e-commerce maybe five years ago, a little bit like you said by accident. I didn't know that you could sell on platforms like Amazon, but I was doing uh, global procurement and logistics for a uh, U.S. government contractor and I noticed how inexpensively I could buy items that were selling for a lot of money on Amazon. So I started in the wholesale model. And from there, I kind of quickly learned the importance of building a business based on um, what a lot of people call the private label model, which is uh, basically having, you know, dedication and effort being put into building your own brands. That way you weren't dependent on one platform. And uh, from there, I started using contacts that I already had, like in China for procurement and logistics. And I, people start coming to me, hey, Tim, can you help me source this? Can you help me ship this? And with the team that I had, we were really good at it. So we started the company Hickory Flats, which is a service-based company that initially did a, a lot of procurement and logistics. Right now, we're mostly uh, have kind of dwindled our services down to be laser focused on some specific sourcing services. So we do inspections. We help connect uh, potential buyers with legitimate and really good suppliers in China. And now we're also in Guatemala and India as well. So we're doing some sourcing in all those locations. And then we also do training. So um, training can be as intense as coming to China or coming to Central America with us on one of our sourcing retreats where we kind of teach you um, the methods and tactics and put you in touch with all of our suppliers and contacts uh, as well as finding new products while you're there all the way to um, like our one degree mastermind, which is a group coaching, collaborating and training portal where uh, we do monthly coaching calls with um, all of our students kind of group roundtable coaching, which is awesome because it's really, really great content. It helps people get across hurdles and building their businesses, but it's a lot less expensive than coaching. And it has an element of very, very high end networking with other potential sellers, collaborators, and uh, kind of industry leaders. That's actually awesome. You guys are providing some unique set of services. Now moving on to an Amazon related question. There are a lot of sellers nowadays who are using softwares like SellerApp to search for profitable items. But there are some importers who are still looking at smaller factories in China to find out interesting items and then latching onto it. Do you think private labeling fresh products are as effective as already trending items? Yeah, I think that um, a lot of people right now misunderstood what private label is. Private label is not buying some cheap generic product off of Alibaba and putting a sticker on it. Private labeling should be identifying a unique product opportunity, a unique niche opportunity, and selling it 
however you can. That may be a platform like Amazon, or it might not even make sense on Amazon. It needs to be sold on Shopify or eBay or Etsy, place like that. So I also think that a lot of people, because they don't understand what private label is, misunderstand how to use software. So a tool like Seller App is uh, kind of critical in determining the viability of a product. It's critical in determining you know, how well your competition's doing, determining if something is saturated or if there's a high enough search volume to make this a legitimate contender to put into your catalog. But you have to get the product ideas um, oftentimes from somewhere else because a lot of times product ideas that pop up uh, like in your Amazon feed are already saturated. So I think that um, using software tools like Seller App is really, really beneficial as long as you're keeping an open mind in product ideas. When I first started going to China, I was finding products that um, I thought were cool, but I didn't think they sold well because I used, or I didn't think they would sell well because I was putting too much dependence on software like Jungle Scout. And those products ended up being things like the fidget spinners before they were popular. And if I had known then what I know now, you know, I could have been on the first round of sellers selling fidget spinners on page one when those got really popular. But instead, I was misusing software. So I do think that software and every day it plays a huge role in what we're doing in private label and uh, selling, but we just need to make sure that nobody's falling into the trap of assuming that um, private label is just finding something that somebody else is already selling a ton of and just putting their own sticker on it and assuming it's going to sell because it's, it's a little more difficult than that. That is definitely interesting. Now moving on to the next question. How long does a general process actually take for a seller to identify the profitable product and then go through the entire process of private labeling? That all depends on the product. So I'll give you a couple examples. Most people think that sourcing from, let's say China is super easy. You identify something, you uh, validate it based on keyword research and competition, and then you order it and sell it. No, it takes a little bit longer than that, which isn't a bad thing because it also creates a barrier to entry from other people. Typically, I say that a full-blown private label launch on a new product from China takes about six months. So it might take you two or three weeks to research it and determine, hey, I think I'm going to move forward with this, you know, looking at the data. Then, uh, you know, it might take you a week or two to find a supplier and then get samples from the supplier and think, uh, maybe these samples aren't good. Let's find a new supplier and order more samples. And then by the whole time that whole process goes, uh, goes through, you know, you're in it maybe a month and a month and a half. Now, I tell people to always measure twice, cut once, okay? Measure it twice, cut once. And what I mean by that is test, test, test. Do not take a product that software alone says is good and buy 2,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 units. Go a little slowly, buy a small minimum order quantity, even if it's not customized, even if it doesn't have the exact color and packaging and branding that you want. Get a small order quantity where you can test the keywords, load it into Amazon, run tests with PPC campaigns and try to find something that has a low cost per click, which means low competition with high impressions, identify those keywords, and then reach out to the manufacturer and do your custom branding, your custom logos, your custom production and colors and packaging. So all said, going the traditional route of private label can take five to six months, but that's a good thing because if it were super easy, everybody would be doing it. Just, you know, I tell listeners and I tell followers to not get into the habit of believing all the hype that it's, you know, super quick and super fast. But if you set up a replicatable process, the opportunity is endless because there are a million products out there that need to be found and put on these platforms and sold well. Um, you just have to take the time to find them. That actually makes sense. 
uh, for sellers who are working with factories directly, how do you ensure consistent product quality and standards are met with every shipment? So, especially when it comes to China, there's two things that you have to do. You have to trust your supplier and you have to not trust your supplier. Okay. Now, what I mean by that is you have to have a degree of both. When I say you have to trust your supplier, what I really mean is you have to build a personal relationship with them. Okay. These suppliers have a ton of inquiries that are constantly coming in. They have a ton of opportunities jumping to new products or new sales platforms or new vendors or new buyers. If you have a personal relationship with them, they're going to be more likely to make sure that your quality is good, that your pricing is good, that you get first priority on production runs. Um, that relationship with a supplier can go as simple as just sending them nice, polite messages and telling them that you appreciate them and that you look forward to building your business with them. They can advance all the way up to like, I've got a supplier that um, one day he had me out at a nice dinner in Shanghai and he told me that his son is a big fan of um, NBA basketball players and that he loves Allen Iverson as the player. So I locked that in the back of my head. And the next time I came to China several months later, I messaged him on WeChat and I said, what size shoe does your son wear? And he sent me a shoe size. And I got online and I bought like three pairs of Reebok Allen Iverson shoes. You never close out. They were wholesale, you know, $25, $30 pair. But in China, you can't get them because they're so high in demand. So I brought that factory owner three pairs of Allen Iverson shoes for his kid. And I was his best friend and I still have a great relationship with him. So build that relationship to make sure that you're getting high priority and quality price and production schedule. Now on the flip side, understand that Chinese culture is very different than Western culture. Okay. I can place an order and get a high quality. And the next time I order, I'll say, Hey, can you shave, you know, 3% off the price because my margins are going down. They might say, yes, I'm assuming that the order will be the exact same as the last time. But when I ask them to shave 3% off the price, they might shave off a little bit in material or a little bit in packaging quality. So they're not cheating you. They're not out to get you. They're just trying to put something in your budget, right? China is also a, what we call a yes society. It is polite to say yes. It's impolite to say no. So if you ask them, hey, is the quality good on this? They're going to say yes. Don't necessarily trust that. So you've got a personal relationship with them. That's great. But you also always have to get third-party inspections, okay? So what I do is when we place an order, we give them a deposit, and we tell them, hey, we're going to do a full, you know, full production inspection prior to paying you the final remaining balance. And then what they do is they know that it's going to be inspected, so they're going to you know, dot all their I's and cross all their T's and make sure that the production is perfect. Then when they say the production run is done, we send a third party inspection service. We actually have our own. If you guys are interested in inspection services, check out our website, uh, hickory-flights.com. We have inspection services and we'll send our inspectors in and do a full inspection and make sure that we're happy with the outcome. Now, are there going to be some defects? Sure. There's always going to be one or 2% defects. And those could be as simple as a, you know, just a fingerprint on the glass, you know, can cause that as a failure. It's not something that's going to cause you a problem as a reseller, but uh, get those inspections done. Make sure that you're satisfied with the production run before you pay them the remaining balance. Okay. If they know that you're not going to pay them the balance until the production run is done, then you're in great shape. That means you're holding all the cards, you're holding all the poker chips. Uh, you kind of have the leverage. So between that personal relationship and inspecting what you expect, then you can usually, um, guarantee yourself a high degree of success in the quality of your production runs. That's actually right. 
Uh, do you think actually building long-term relationship with your reliable supplier is good? And is it actually necessary to have an edge over others during sourcing? Um, it can be. You know, I don't always build a personal relationship on trial orders and first production runs because they take time. So I identify the suppliers that I think is more, uh, you know, are more likely to continue doing business with me you know, the, the, the kind of flagship suppliers and then start building those really personal relationships with them, you know, after I know that I'm going to be using that product, you know, long into the future. That's some good advice. You did actually mention about some inspection checks. Uh, what do usually sourcing companies do if a container package is stuck? Like the inspection checks, who's responsible for the charges of some of these containers which are not in transit? So when it comes to logistics and shipping, um, there are several things that your freight forwarder can be in control of, and there are several things that they cannot be in control of. And one of those biggest things is delays for inspections. And these are like your customs and border patrol. This is your import inspections, your FDA inspections. So, uh, you know, we've shipped a lot of products and no matter how perfect our paperwork is and how simple the product is, sometimes our containers or our air shipments just get flagged for inspections. There's absolutely nothing that we can do about it. And there's nothing that your freight forward can do about it. Generally, these are government agencies that are performing these inspections. They don't care if you're happy or not. Um, they're going to charge you whether you like it or not. And, you know, they're not a business that has to have good customer service. So it doesn't matter. So what I tell people is assume the worst. Assume that your products are, you know, going to get inspected, which can be a delay of five days. I've seen all the way to 45 days in some extreme cases. So schedule accordingly. If you're shipping a container that you have to sell in Q4 and you're planning on it landing October 1st, you're too late because it may go through without a hitch and it may land on October 1st and you're fine, or it may get held up for those 30 or 45 day inspections. So plan ahead, always get your products earlier if you can afford to. And then also don't panic, don't freak out, don't lose sleep over it, don't overly worry. Don't start getting really upset with your freight forward or thinking they can control it. Don't be calling Customs and Border Patrol. Just let it play out because there's absolutely nothing you can do to speed things up. Now, when it comes to charges, you have to assume that there's going to be some inspection charges. For a what they call a VAXIS exam, which is like just a, um, an x-ray exam, that's where someone at the port says, hey, we want to, uh, to run an x-ray across this container and just see what's in there, make sure it is what it's supposed to be. And that can cost $200 a container. It's cheap. But I have had full um, intensive exam um, or compliance exams with full containers where they carry the container to a third-party warehouse. Somebody physically removes every single box, opens several boxes, inspects them, puts it all back. And those can run into the thousands of dollars. Now, these are not very common, so don't panic. Don't worry about it. But I'm telling you this because you need to understand that these things can happen. And if you're sourcing and selling a product that your margins cannot afford to take a hit like that, then you might be selling the wrong product. I have people all the time say, Tim, I had this product, you know, I had 10,000 units and I got hit with a $2,000 inspection fee. I'm going to lose money on this entire order. Well, if, you know, that little bit of a price difference completely ruined your entire order, you were sourcing the wrong product anyways. So just understand that some of those things in delays and extra expenses you can't control with inspections. Don't ruin a relationship with your freight forwarder by snapping and calling them, you know, all sorts of names because you think it's their fault and make sure that you're adjusted for time and margins in case those inspections happen. Okay. Actually talking about containers, is there a minimum quantity of how much container can carry? What are some of the critical metrics when it comes to estimating the volume in terms of material that needs to be shipped? 
So some of the important things that you need to find out about your product are how high they can be stacked if your supplier is going to provide them on pallets. So, you know, there's a lot of different variations there. Most pallets that are 40 by 48 inches, um, you can put about 18 or 20 in a 40 foot container, right? But if you take all those boxes off of the pallets, you can store a lot more. They're going to be hand stacked in there. Okay. So typically a container holds around, I think 65 cubic meters for a 40 foot high cube container. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you could fit a full 60 or 65 cubic meters in there. If they're on pallets, there's going to be dead space. If you have something heavy, you don't want to stack that all over the ceiling. I have had uh, freight forwarder ship stuff that was just too heavy. And when I get the container, um, all the bottom rows are squished. You don't want to do that. So just keep in mind that there's not one specific set amount that you can fit in a container because not everything um, works the same. You know, it's, it's not always apples to apples comparison. Also, there's a weight limit on those containers. So, you know, people are thinking about volume. Oh, I can put 65 cubic meters of, you know, metal something, some sort of metallic item, right? And they're heavy. The boxes are strong. You can stack them, you know, 30 feet high and they won't collapse. But if your overall weight is higher than the trucks can carry legally, then you're going to be in a really bad position. And I've accidentally done that before. I've I've looked at volume only and I've loaded up containers with heavy stuff and it was like 14,000 pounds overweight when it landed in the US and I couldn't even get a trucking company to carry it. So I had to hire a team at the port to unload these big pieces of machinery that I had shipped on this container, split it up into two trucks and ship it. That cost me another like seven or $8,000. So there's not just one metric that you use. It has to do with your product, who's stacking it, how it's being stacked, if it's on pallets, if it's fragile, and also um, be careful that you don't go over your total container weight, which is typically about 35,000 pounds on average. Is it recommended for the importers to be there during this uh, shipment where, where, when the loading actually happens? Uh, not necessarily. If you have that good relationship with your, um, with your supplier, you know, and you trust them to ship your stuff correctly, that's no problem. I have actually flown to China to supervise the loading of some containers of highly specialized equipment. And there's also equipment that had to be disassembled before we go in the container because it was too big. So of course I want to see how they disassembled it and loaded it that way when it landed at the final location, which in this case was actually East Africa, I was there to unload it and supervise it and make sure that we assembled it correctly. But generally speaking, your suppliers want to do a good job for you. They want to make you happy so you keep coming back for business. So they're not going to do something silly like incorrectly load a container generally. It happens sometimes, but generally speaking, you can trust your suppliers to know how to load that product because they want it to arrive in good condition so you keep reordering from them. Okay, that actually makes sense. We need to trust the suppliers in these matters. Moving on to the next question. Amazon is very strict in what it considers as added materials. Many new sellers find it actually difficult to import beauty and personal care products from China even if your safety data sheets are clean. What do suppliers need to do in terms of hazmat items to say compliant with regulations? So let me explain a little bit about hazmat. Hazmat is actually controlled by the Department of Transportation. Okay, um, When Amazon is enforcing hazmat things, it's not because they're enforcing it or it's not because there are rules that they made up. It's because the Department of Transportation enforces it. This also includes warehousing space. Department of Transportation controls warehouse. So let me give you a scenario. If I'm selling um, 
one gallon jugs of kerosene for kerosene heaters. That's obviously very flammable liquid, very hazardous if it, if it breaks open and spills. Amazon does not like you selling that stuff unregulated because their trucks are carrying it and their warehouses are storing it. And they have to go through hurdles to make sure that they're compliant with hazmat, uh, you know, requirements for the, the country that they're in. The same thing applies to EU and Japan and Australia. So Amazon, because it's such a headache to transport, store, and fulfill the orders, um, they make it a little bit difficult. Now, let me get specifically into health and beauty. Health and beauty, you're obviously not buying, you know, jugs of kerosene fuel, but hazardous materials don't necessarily have to be flammable. They don't necessarily have to be explosive. They can be hazardous if they are spilled, okay? Now, think about makeup powder. It comes in a little bitty compact, right? It's a small quantity. But what if I have 10 pallets of that? And what if those 10 pallets are all in one truck? Now we've got a lot of powder. And what if that truck flips over on the road and all that stuff spills out and it rains? And now all this powder washes down into the rainwater collection system. We now have a hazardous material incident because that material is hazardous to aquatic life, to vegetation, to things like that. Okay. So when we think of hazmat, we think of nuclear, explosive, poison, flammable. No, it's anything that can just be a hazard to life, whether it's aquatic life or human life or anything like that. So believe it or not, cosmetics are very, very highly regulated in ha under hazmat regulations. Also think of like powder. Think if a pallet in the Amazon warehouse falls off of a top shelf and all these boxes blow up and all that powder in there becomes airborne and people are breathing it in, is it going to cause respiratory problems? Is it going to cause them to cough and choke and have allergic reactions? So hazmat products or hazardous material products need to have a whole lot of documentation. They need to have a whole lot of certifications. They need to have a whole lot of import export um, regulation controls in place. So generally speaking, I tell people to stay away from health and beauty when it comes to import. The truth is the margins are pretty low anyways. The big pharmaceutical, um, I'm sorry, not pharmaceutical, the big uh, like makeup and health and beauty manufacturers are pretty predominant in that market. So it's not worth it for you to fight over those very small margins when you have the increased risk and liability and hurdles that you have to go through just to be FDA, I'm, I'm sorry, just to be hazmat compliant. Now, addition to that, FDA compliance is a whole other animal. Anything that you ingest or that touches your skin has to fall under FDA compliance, and that is extremely hard to get. So understand that if you're looking at one of those products, you're going to have a lot of hurdles to go through. It can be profitable. Uh, you can sell a lot of that stuff. It may be your niche. Just understand that there are a lot of unique barriers to entry into those unique um, categories. Also, let me touch on batteries. Um, a lot of people are having problems with sending products into Amazon FBA with batteries because of hazmat, hazmat requirements. So remember my analogy of the small containers of makeup. They may be small, but they add up. If I send 10,000 remote control car toys into Amazon and all of them have two AA batteries, that's 20,000 batteries. That means in the back of one container, one truck, there's a lot of chemical because if you break those batteries open, they all have chemicals in them. So Amazon does not necessarily like a lot of those batteries being shipped in because in large quantities, they have to go through all the hurdles of hazardous materials, restrictions and enforcement and procedures. So I tell people, if you can ship, if you're selling an electronic product that takes batteries, get your manufacturer to leave the batteries out of it, especially if you're selling on Amazon. 
Um, your customer is not going to decide whether to buy or not buy it if batteries are included or not. Um, that's not really going to alter their purchasing decision. And if just having batteries or not is determining that buyer decision, then you might have the wrong product anyways. Um, so try to get things produced and shipped without batteries. And then you have no hazardous materials compliance issues, either with import, export and depart, um, department transportation or with Amazon. Okay. Sorry. I know that was a lot of information that I just threw out there. <laughs> Absolutely not. It actually makes sense because hazmat is a very important topic. Actually, moving on from hazmat to new technology questions. There are still some sellers who take the risk of introducing new technology products into the market. Do you think it's actually necessary for them to innovate and develop new prototypes to sell while not to stick around tried and tested products? That's a tough question. I love new products. I, knew, I love new, newly developed products. But for most people that are getting started in e-commerce, they probably cannot afford to get into those products. Those products are expensive to develop. They're expensive to test. Um, you might have, you know, in one electronic product, 15 or 20 different plastic molds, and you've got soldering joints, and you've got software or, uh, uh, or you know, hardware involved in that. So it is a great niche to be in as long as you're picking the right products. But the barrier to entry is extremely high in new technology products. So here's what I would say. Instead of developing a new tech product, find a tech product that is not currently on a platform. Okay. This is what I mean. Um, I go to the CES conference in Vegas every year, the consumer electronics show. It's huge. All the big brands are there. It's a billion dollar trade show in Vegas. It's massive. And it would be easy for me to walk to that huge show and think, well, this is all the technology project products there are. And of course they're all on Amazon. They're all sold in the U S but there's a lot of products out there that are not at that show that are not currently in the U S or the EU or Australia or Japan or where you're selling. I like to go to places like China where most technology products are actually produced and go to local trade shows, go to markets like the EU market and find products that are sitting on a shelf that a manufacturer has already taken the cost of developed and spent the time to make it work and make this a good product. And you be the first one to launch it on a platform like Amazon. I know that sounds crazy, but I see it every time I go to EWU China about four times a year. I go to the Canton Fair several times a year and I consistently find products that are really, really innovative, that are great products that nobody's selling yet. And if I can set up a unique distribution channel and say, hey, I'll buy 5,000 of these if you'll let me have exclusive distribution rights on Amazon, a lot of times they will. Now what I've done is I found a product that I can launch instantly and I didn't have to bear the cost and the risk and the liability of producing this product and designing it and patenting it and engineering it and testing it. It's already there. So I think there's a happy medium between not getting into technology and trying to develop our own and it's find the stuff that nobody knows exists yet. That is definitely interesting. Uh, moving on to sourcing countries, you know, while China is a great market to import from, what are some alternative countries that is a great for sourcing items? So right now, I think that uh, for us, the second biggest opportunity for us is Central America. Now we sell most of our products in the U.S. and uh, Central America, you know, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, um, basically anything south of Mexico is considered Central America. The cost of labor is inexpensive, but the quality of products are actually really nice. We sell a lot of products that are made of leather, wood, ceramics, textiles, and we do some really, really nice coffee. And <laughs> what we've noticed is our products can be sold at a higher price point than maybe an Asian produced product because we attach a story to it. So we tell the story of 
you know, empowering these women weavers and these men that run these, you know, leather tanneries and production shops. Um, also, it's local. Uh, it's local for, you know, most people in North America. I can get on a plane and be in Guatemala City in about four and a half hours with one layover, um, which is a lot easier to run down there and meet with my artisans and producers and our local team than it would be Asia. Um, they are a little bit limited on what products can be produced. There's no technology products. There's not a lot of like plastics and metals. It's mostly artisanal products. And they constitute a large, more than half of, um, you know, our entire product catalog. And they're high margin items. They sell really well and they have a great story. The other place that I see upcoming as a really great sourcing opportunity is India. Um, one reason for that is India does have the ability to do heavily machined and processed items like plastics and metals. They also have the ability to get into technology, um, produce some of those tech products. And India is growing fast. The middle class in India is the fastest growing um, you know, population demographic in the world. Now, what that means is Indian producers are trying to keep up with their own internal country's demand, okay? Billions of people, right? So if they're producing all these products for their own population, they don't even have time necessarily to be thinking about exporting. And they don't have time to be thinking about, well, how can I sell this product on Amazon US? So we're working right now heavily with some producers in India that all we're doing is buying things that are already in production that nobody in the US even knows exists. Um, also, as the middle class increases and buying and production increases in that whole region of the world, more manufacturers are coming online. And these manufacturers are looking for jobs. and They're looking for products to produce. So, for instance, we have products that are made of leather in India right now. And it's because we found all of these up-and-coming leather producers that needed more work. So, we sent them samples of products that maybe we were having made in China. And now we're having them made in India. And we don't have to worry about the... Um, the politics, you know, between the U.S. and China, we can get it from India right now. And also a lot of times the, pro, uh, the pricing is a little bit better because uh, the demand isn't as high. Everybody knows to go to China, but not a lot of people are going to India right now. So for us, the two things outside of China are Central America and India. That is interesting. Now suppliers know which countries they can focus on trying to source their products from. Concentrating on China itself, the Chinese wholesale supply market is usually dominated by a few companies. With the competition from companies such as Alibaba and JB.com, what do suppliers need to do to stay in race? Are there certain advantages of FBSLs to work with small factories rather than mega companies? So, most of the factories in China are tiny. Okay, everybody thinks of Chinese manufacturing; they think of these huge companies with thousands of workers and the big smokestacks. That's just not true. 90% of China's manufacturing are tiny little workshops. They might be a small building with a small workshop in the, the ground floor and the family lives on the second floor. And this workshop might be dingy and cold and ugly, but it's got the most high-tech injection molding plastic, you know, manufacturing device ever made in the world right in the middle of that floor and they're pumping out great products. Most of these small companies do not have an export department. They do not have an international sales team. They do not have uh, translators, right? So what happens is they rely on resellers. And those resellers are who you see on Alibaba generally. Now, getting back to the question, the large factories, the, the ones that make things like Anchor and you know these, these well-known companies, they are large enough to have export departments. They're large enough to have you know, very bilingual sales staff. They're large enough to have their own e-commerce platform managers. 
So when I'm looking for a product opportunity like from China, I'm looking for the small factories because they're less likely to compete with me. They're less likely for other people to find them and compete on the same product. Everybody knows about the big factories. Those are the guys that you see at like Canton Fair and you got all this competition. I like dealing with small factories. One is because I can be one of their largest customers. If I'm just an Amazon seller and I'm competing with Walmart, I'm always going to play, you know, second fiddle then. They're not going to care about me. But if I am, you know, constituting 60% of the production of a small family-owned factory, they're always going to take good care of me. They're going to make sure that their service, that their production, their prices are good because they don't want to lose me. Um, but that's actually great because if I want to deal with the small factories, you know, keep in mind that that's most of what China's manufacturing is. So it creates an incredible opportunity for sellers like us because there are a lot more small factories out there than there are big factories. That is actually enlightening because a lot of sellers actually don't know about this. To round off our discussion, Tim, you know, to all the sellers bringing out items from China, it is usually difficult to find supplies as they lack contacts with these Chinese manufacturers. Should new importers be working with a contractor or an agent that represents the factory instead of working with the factory directly itself? And actually, what are the advantages of consulting with services like Hickory Flats? So when I started sourcing products in China, I quickly found out that dealing with these factories, I couldn't do directly. And it's for the reasons that I just said, they don't have an export sales department. They don't have export sales staff. They can't speak my language and I surely can't speak theirs. So I started using local assets on the ground, which are just sourcing agents. And it was incredibly beneficial for me. Um, I have to pay them a few percentage. It costs me a little bit, but they can do the work 10 times faster. They can do it 10 times better. They can find suppliers that I can't. So using a local team on the ground of sourcing agents, and that can be, full-time staff that you hire to work for you full-time, or it can be sourcing agents like us that, um, you know, we don't even have to stay involved in the whole process. We just connect you with these small manufacturers. There is a huge advantage to it. If you are going to the same platforms as everybody else, if you're going to Canton Fair, if you're going to Alibaba, all of your competition is looking for those same suppliers too. Unless you do something different than them, you're always going to be neck and neck with them in the business building race because you're doing the same thing. If you use local agents or sourcing agents or local assets to start finding factories that nobody else knows exists, then you get the advantage over them. So I highly, highly, highly recommend and suggest it. Okay, that was actually really interesting. Uh, this was an intense discussion, Tim. You know, we hope all the sellers looking to source private label products have taken down notes from this deep dive into this topic. If you want to learn more about sourcing from China, check out Tim's sourcing and training service at www.hickoryflats.com the link is in the description below thank you for coming on the show tim no problem glad i could help to all the viewers out there if you like this video give us a thumbs up subscribe to our youtube channel for great quality content follow us on facebook as well as instagram for further updates and also head to our website www.sellerapp.com to activate your seven day free trial stay tuned for more seller app sessions have a good day bye